Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Oars and Alps. Did you know that roughly 60% of what you put on your skin is absorbed, Greenwald? Oof. Antiperspirant is full of harmful chemicals that have been linked to numerous health problems. Mm. Oars and Alps aluminum-free deodorant is a natural deodorant that actually works. This powerful deodorant uses cornstarch to absorb sweat and has notes of cedarwood and fresh greens. My personal smell palette is very pro-cedarwood. Let me tell you something, Chris Ryan. Mm. We are in a new studio with no air conditioning. I'm wearing Oars and Alps right now. Are you Come really? over and see how dry I am and how fresh I smell. <laughs> they sent me a box of this stuff and I am endorsing it. I think it's great. Um, you can head over to oaskincare.com. That's the letter O and the letter A, skincare.com, and get 15% off your purchase of any Oars and Alps products, including their natural deodorant, which is making Greenwald smell like the Pacific Northwest forest that he is. Just use promo code WATCH. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Andy and I talked a little bit about the Westworld finale. I think a little bit is actually underselling. We talked about it for like 25 minutes. Uh, and then we talked about the new Game of Thrones power rankings. This is what everybody in TV is looking for. They're trying to find their own Game of Thrones. So we took all the shows that are in that zone, uh, whether it's stuff that's on the air or stuff that's in development that's clearly being ear earmarked to be, this is the next thing you can build the theme park off of. This is the next thing you'll have conventions off of. This is the next thing. There will be novels and there will be, you know, this whole world built around this television show. What are the shows that are on that do that? What are the shows that are in development that do that? Annie and I kind of put them in order of preference. We definitely picked our number ones. I just want to tell you before we get into the episode that we have merch. Finally, you can cop yourself a watch t-shirt. Just go to theringer.com yes. slash shop and you can get a beautiful aqua blue Great Job Baranski t-shirt. Sizes go from small to Greenwald's preferred double XL. <laughs> Andy loves wearing t-shirts like he's 2006 Cameron. Did you know that? I, I do know that. It's true. Uh, you can also get a you know watch so well. sticker in a, the Ringer Podcast Network sticker 10-pack for $19.99 and you get a Bill Simmons sticker, Against All Odds, Larry Wilmore, JJ Reddick, House of Carbs, Binge Mode, One Shining Podcast, The Rewatchables, and The Watch in this pack. Can I tell you why I'm excited for people to be wearing watch merch? You because tell me. right now on the streets of Los Angeles or sometimes on the streets of New York, people shout things at me. And it often is related to the work of Christine Baranski. And I feel I'm all alone. I'm vulnerable. Uh -huh. I love the feedback, but I'm surprised. If you're in the wild wearing one of these watch t-shirts... I'm going to yell at you. Lots of people like to drive by me in LA. Mm -hmm. They roll up slow. Mm. They roll down their window and they're like, you like to get wet, man? Yeah. Well, that and happened. I'm like, thanks for listening to the Rewatchables. <laughs> you should put a sticker on your bumper. Or no thank you. I just say no to drugs. <laughs> uh, anyway, go to theringer.com slash shop. Cop all that stuff. It's money well spent. Let's get into the show. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in a new podcast studio, meet me in the forge. It's going down. It's Andy Greenwald. How do you feel about the acoustics in here? A little, little airy. It's I feel like we're recording pet sounds There's or some natural wood. Kaya's on the decks today. We were in a new spot in The Ringer HQ. We're mm -hmm. testing out some new rooms. We're the uh, canary in the coal mine. Do you think, like, is this a room that Steve Albini would prefer? I don't know. I mean, did you see he just won the World Series of Poker? It's an amazing career pivot, and we're not paying enough attention to it. <laughs> um, it's really amazing. Greenwald, happy Monday. Yeah. Uh, summer rolls on. Uh, we're here the day after Westworld Season 2 is concluded. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that finale. And then we are going to talk mostly mm-hmm. about the, quote, new Game of Thrones, close quote, power rankings. Because this has been the buzzword of television development, I think, for yeah. the last two years or so, where everybody is like, find me my Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. That was Jeff Bezos to the Amazon team. I want a Game of Thrones. Let's go big. You have so much development, so much snatching up of intellectual property going on that everybody is in the market for this. And it's not unlike when, you know, eight years ago or five or six years ago, when we started recording podcasts together, there was a wave of Homeland copycats that came out after. Obviously, the stakes are much bigger. Um, But we wanted to kind of check in on a bunch of the projects that are earmarked to be the next Game of Thrones, both happening currently on the air and in development. Yeah, and I think this is a good time for it because as Westworld season two comes to a close, so I think the one thing that even the fans and non-fans alike would agree on is that Westworld is not the next Game of Thrones in terms of uh, fan base, in terms of the size of its audience. And, and I, I don't mean that pejoratively. I will be pejorative momentarily. Sure. I mean that solely in terms of its intent and how it's being received. Also worth having the conversation now because we are hopefully at the midpoint of waiting for this final season of Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's, April. So we're less than a year out. Is it April now? Is it? Okay. I think it was supposed, to, at least it was supposed to be April. It's, I, yeah. it's early 2019, uh, probably April. Um, it has been... That's going to be a lovely NBA playoffs for me. It's Oh man, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> it's been a year, which is sort of hard to believe. Yeah. And so we are here basically planning for the next stages of uh, a fandom that still has one season to go. And also, we have to, at this moment, before we delve into anything else, just give our most sincere congrats and shout out to uh, Jon Snow and Ygritte. Oh, man, they looked great. Tied the knot over the weekend. Um, It turns out that Kit Harington looks just as rugged and handsome with fluttering snow around him or fluttering confetti. (laughs) It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. They got married in an ancestral castle. Yeah. I don't know whose ancestry. Was it Harrenhal? Was it the one that the dragon melted? You, you're not. You're not in midseason form. Chris just looked at me like I just started speaking Welsh. That well, was that's incredible. because I'm so immersed in Westworld, man. Can I stay off of Westworld for one more minute? Just, sure. Just to keep Go the good ahead. vibes Anything else rolling. you want to talk about? Did you see um, the outfits that uh, Sophie Turner and Maisie Williams wore to no, this wedding? No. What? Oh my God, queens, fashion icons. Can we pause recording just so Chris can see these and then we can get his reaction live? Sure. While we're talking about fashion, actually, I'll vamp. The watch has T-shirts. Did you know that? I wanted to show you that Sophie Turner wore an official watch <laughs> t-shirt. It was really surprising. Yeah, but, you know. She loves Christine Bransky. Yeah, she's always <laughs> been a big fan. Actually, Rose Leslie is on The Good Fight. I know that. Did I you watch, know that? I've watched a lot of Good Fight. Okay, sorry, go on. Vamp, talk about anyway, our t-shirts. the watch has t-shirts. Uh, you can go to theringer.com slash shop, and we've got a bunch of new t-shirts in the shop right now. We have a lovely kind of uh, aqua blue t-shirt that says great job Bransky on the front and then it mm-hmm. says the watch on the back it's really really cool um, it's according to the merch store high key the official uniform of the double down book club wow really good 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 copy there um, it's also get it. true that most book clubs have uniforms for men and women uh, sizes run from small to double x do we get t-shirts We'll see. I would like to wear one. I think this is very exciting. I've always wanted merch, but I've never before been affiliated with anything, I think, that uh, that actually required. I don't want to get too far off topic here. Okay, sorry. Here, here's the real topic. We're coming back to Westworld, No, guys. I was going to go farther off topic. Let me see these guys. Damn. Look at these iconic queens. Her glasses are great. Yeah, look, can, I, can I tell you something? Yeah. Is that the actual wedding outfit? Yeah, these are the outfits. So just for you people who can't see it this out? and can call I, this up. Kaya, so, is think, this appropriate for a wedding? Sophie Turner's outfit? 
Sophie Turner is wearing kind of a blood red power blazer. Yeah. She looks like she's wearing like an 80s men's blazer as a dress. If Peter Max drew a Duran Duran cover in 1984 <laughs> and that cover became sentient, that's what she's wearing. You know, it's just I terrific. saw those over the weekend and I had the same thought. I was like, are those wedding appropriate? Yeah. Like, but I'm just I'm going to go with it. I think I like it. I think it's showing the appropriate level of respect for a union between two celebrities who met at work. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I just think it's just like, it's a beautiful spectacle and you should dress accordingly, but they're not in this for the, the long term. The major rule of weddings is you can't wear white. That's, that. there are other rules. That's the yeah. only rule that was observed at my <laughs> yes. wedding. Correct. Yes. But yeah. That was why it was so wild when I showed up in a resplendent white tux at your Chris wedding. Chris actually <laughs> thought my wedding was Puffy's annual uh, Memorial Day white Hamptons party. white party. <laughs> Uh, we're getting we're getting way far away. Guess who doesn't okay. want to talk about Westworld's finale in this um, room? Name him. I don't know why you would be nervous about this right. because the arc of pop culture is bending towards Greenwald. <laughs> you don't talk about that. The responses today. I'm yeah. looking at they're, they're, they're second wall on Rolling Stone, and uh, you know I know that Alan probably doesn't write his own decks, and it's not no, there's no shots at this, but it's like this season Westworld went off the tracks. It's like. There's only one other season. It's not like it had four or five seasons of running smoothly yeah. and then it got derailed. Look, you know, this is a divisive show. I do not think we on the watch have ever been have have ever been like full throated in support of it. I probably enjoyed it a, a lot more than Andy has, but uh, that would be like saying I enjoy car crashes more than Andy does. I mean, I don't I don't know. Uh it's more that, you know, Shoemaker and the gang did a great job explaining everything mm -hmm. about it on Westworld and Recapables, and they did a live show last night, which you can still check out on our Twitter and YouTube pages. Um, it has its supporters. It has its fans. I think that there is a good show inside this show. Mm -hmm. um, watching this show, though, it started to make me, like, physically uncomfortable because of the, the things that I don't like about it are the things that drive me nuts. So... When people like the dialogue is so bad on this show mm -hmm. that it it actually makes it difficult to watch people talk. But then I find the non-dialogue scenes to be so perfunctory that I'm dying for people to talk. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like I can't I can't win here. There were some episodes this and, and people have pointed out there are three really good episodes this season. Yeah. And I, I particularly liked Riddle of the Sphinx, which was the Peter Mullen, Jimmy Simpson kind of I appreciated episode. that episode. I thought it was really well done and I thought it was a lot of people are saying this, a direction for this show to go, which is to focus. Focus on mm -hmm. one or two characters per episode. You've got our attention. We're all interested in this concept. I don't think anybody was in a rush to get out of the Westworld park the way that the creators seem to be. And they could have delved into each character lost style and given us a real sense of who these people were or not, you know, or the, not because identity is such a construct on this show that I think it would have been a really interesting second season. And instead, I think it's just entirely about the the creators of this show's sort of ideas about like free will and AI and the future and whether we're any of us truly are any one thing. And it just became so confusing and so tripped up by its own ropes that I think it kind of just fell flat on its face and I don't really know where you go from here. Yeah, I don't think, and I again, I, I say this with respect, I, I think that over time, a longer running show will make it clear what the creators, the people driving the train, what they're interested in. And I, I think that I, you can make the case that that Nolan and Joy 
just don't appear to be interested in corralling this large cast that they've assembled into anything that is anything that resembles traditional um, narrative entertainment. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that that's interested in that. And I think that... I think they might actually even have some hostility for that. Yes, and, and I think that's a good but point. But not in like a Jean-Luc Godard way. Like in a, you dimdums are like watching this show and you think this person's a hero, but what's a hero? But what's a hero, yeah. right. And and I think you can't, much like if you look at like a, like a Picasso painting and you're like, oh, how interesting the way he deconstructed a still life. You have to know that he also knew how to paint a still life. You know what I mean? He didn't go jump right to commenting yeah. on it and undoing it. Um, there's a line from the finale where Dolores says, I don't want to play cowboys and Indians anymore. And it's like, we got that yeah. loud and clear. We know that. And yet, for whatever reason, whether it was because of the power of IP or the uh, or, or whatever else may the case may be, they chose a theme park that is dedicated to playing cowboys and Indians, which is itself a reductive binary. And we knew that going in. So to be continually be bucking against that in a way that at times I think strives for the profound, but doesn't actually deliver is frustrating. The, the, I think that well, it's Steppenwolf- not even a war on genre. It's not even like, well, it's, it's this hybrid Western sci-fi thing, but we're actually like upending those. It's just a war on the things that we have as a society have agreed on that you kind of need mm-hmm. for storytelling, mm-hmm. which is at some point there needs to be a reliable narrator. At some point there need to be some, it, there at least needs to be a set of rules and consequences that you abide by. And this isn't actually psychedelic. This isn't really postmodern stuff. This is just like a straightforward quasi prestige television show that just never wants to commit to anything. So you can just shoot somebody in the head, but their brains and their consciousness have been uploaded and downloaded into a completely different character. And no one is actually ever dead. Everyone might be a robot because this show is taking place in four different times, time periods and nothing really matters. Yeah. Like it, it, so if everything is just a construct, which you could say is in fact the sort of grand, you know, mirage of storytelling anyway, sure. It, but like, it's too dull to also be this progressive in its storytelling. It's remarkable that a show that wants to spend so much of its real estate musing on the value and nature of human life actually has no sense of proportion as to its value, or there are no stakes, as you said. I mean, people come and go, and or people get mowed down, and there's just constant death, and yet none of it actually stings with any real emotion, right? I mean, yeah. I, with the exception, I guess, of that one episode that everyone holds up as the best of the season um, about the the guy in the ghost ghost nation. Yeah. I forget the name of the episode. I think Alan Steppenwolf's piece in Rolling Stone does a lot of the work that we're doing, and at least as far as my own opinions are concerned, expresses it in a much more fair-minded way, although ends up in, I think, in the same place where I am, which is definitely out of the park. The thing that the only the thing that I wanted to say about it, and I think this leads into our conversation about what we're looking for as the next Game of Thrones, what the contenders are, was the fact that we're we're also kind of at a um, epistemological dead end here with the show because people either um, dislike it, like me, mm-hmm. or and you said there's a large group of people who who watch it regularly. They enjoy the conversation, they enjoy the mystery, but find themselves saying, "Just don't take it too seriously," and. The one thing you could never accuse Westworld of doing is not taking itself seriously. Well, there's another, there's a third route. And I think that there's a, it could combine, it's a combination of two and then its own thing, which is, um, you're not supposed to watch Game of Thrones. You're not supposed to watch Westworld. You're supposed to play it. 
you know, and that that, there's an article on Vox about this. People have talked about the video game mechanics of this show a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, That essentially it is more a puzzle for the viewer to solve than it is a, you know, any kind of reflection of life or Mm -hmm. supposed to be some sort of like essay on, on existence and identity and fate and destiny and any of that stuff. It's not. It's a puzzle that you're supposed to solve week by week. And you ch- you notice that the aspect ratio of the show changed, so that means you're in this time time right. period. Or you noticed that um, someone's gestures are slightly off or that a scene is mirroring another scene from five episodes ago, so that means X, Y, and Z. And you're constantly sort of solving these, these mm-hmm. algebraic narrative equations. And I think that that is a... A, a valid and viable way to make TV. And it's also... I don't particularly like the performances yeah. or the writing or really anything about this show anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, except for when it when it calmed down enough to stay in one place for more than 20 minutes, which is ironic since last night's episode was 90 minutes. These episodes routinely feel longer than their very long run times. And you'd be surprised... It's surprising that I'm like, no, I want to have... Just do Juliet or just do uh, Jim Delos like, or do Logan's story. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me Logan's story and how this guy wound up becoming Jarvis for the entire park. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's constantly zigzagging and changing in tone and insisting on probably, I'll be kind of honest, like probably for contractual reasons and having this wide-ranging, massive cast of people who all need to have their moments all the time. And it's kind of boring. They called some of them. Uh, Did last they? Night. Well, well, right, we don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think to, to your point about the validity of it, I do think that what Nolan and Joy are attempting to do here, and this is not the kind of criticism that we'll give to shows that are not considered, because they have considered mm-hmm. a lot. They they have very ambitious thoughts about what they want to do, how they want to do it. Um, so we're seeing something that they are. You know, this is what they want to put out into the world. Sure. No question. I think there is absolute validity to the idea that in today's uh, hyper distracted media landscape. One way to stand out is to flood the zone and demand people's attention on a microscopic level, as you're discussing, like looking at aspect ratio. You know, watching not just watching for echoes of previous episodes, almost forcing finding you to, things to deep go back within and promotional watch. websites that somehow they, give you an idea of what's going. That's on. one way to, to 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 keep you paying attention. But I, I I think if I may, I know it's the NBA off season, and I know that you may be tired of metaphors like this, but. Ultimately, the thing about the show that I find difficult is that I think it plays tight. You know, it plays mm-hmm. it, all the things that they have to think about yeah. to make these timelines work and to to prove these surprises and pay off all this mystery. It, you can feel the effort. It feels effortful, which, again, I, I admire on a purely uh, creative and intellectual level. This this is hard. You know, uh, I, I, I'm trying to plot a show that does not have multiple timelines and it's hard to get a hundred things in your head at one time if you are not, um, a robot and that's impressive, but it, you can feel how hard it is for a show that seems to have more moments per episode that would be in any other series, series defining things, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd say, well, everything's changed now. Mm-hmm. Every, well, now we found out this and nothing is ever going to be the same. That happens like routinely like three or four times per episode in Westworld to the point where it just doesn't matter. I mean, any because what you know is that in the next episode, something could happen that completely negates what you thought mm-hmm. was a game changer in this episode. For a show that seems to have so many important ep- moments, it's incredibly wasteful. There's a lot of like, what's what? Well, you just have a helicopter shot of a 
of like Death Valley. It's very expensive. It's okay. I'm sure it is. Yeah. But I, it's like one thing that we talk a lot about direction. We talk a lot about why we like certain directors, why we like certain creators and filmmakers working on different, whether it's television or movies. We were always really enamored with the Nick. Yeah. It never felt like a single shot of the Nick was wasted. Even if it was for play, even if it was just like, let me see what might happen here if I did this. Mm-hmm. There was a purpose. Mm-hmm. There was a reason why I'm going away from this completely boilerplate conversation that's just moving the story along to look at light bulbs down a hallway because I'm taking the opportunity to show you a different part of this world while something else is happening. Mm-hmm. I'm juggling. I'm walking and chewing gum at the same time. The show is incapable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. I don't even know if it would know gum if you threw a whole pack at it. And that's sort of the problem here is that it can feel both overwhelming in terms of like how complicated it is and then also like really remedial. So obviously there are people listening, if they're still listening, who are fans of the show and are looking forward to season three. Do you feel that there is an inflection point here? Because I think the critical consensus has shifted. There was a lot of goodwill towards the show in the first season. I think that if you squint, there is still a conversation around the show, certainly. I mean, the fact that there's a Recapables podcast, you did a live show, people are still talking about it in a way that is compelling and that because is engaged. Because I think that and, people, and I, think, I mean, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that you and I are necessarily the, conve- we're, no, we are not in the majority right now. Yeah. But that conversation has huge value to HBO, you know, in, in terms of sure. keeping, the, the, keeping the show going. I do wonder if there, if we are at a critical inflection point where it will not be, because remember the thing that was surprising to me as someone who was out on the first season was that it was um, rewarded with nominations, you know, at both the Golden Globes and at the Emmys. Will those happen again? And if they don't, does HBO revisit? I mean, obviously, well, I think it's entirely season, possible that we look back on this Westworld season like we look back on Friday Night Lights season two, which was like a necessary evil, yeah. and that there will now be a course correction, and there could be a course correction that's completely different. Like we may never go back to this park. We ne- we ne- may never see another horse on this show, and that I think would be the saving grace for it. L- let me just say again, I, I, look, I've I stopped pretending. Clearly, I am not in on this show. But the idea that a show could be so defined by, as Dolores puts it, the Cowboys and Indians, and then never have another cowboy hat on it, Respect. I got a little charge. Yeah. That's exciting. Respect. Yeah. And and maybe that's where we're going. I mean, I, I, I think that Godspeed, those who go along on a journey, but it is still, it is a very, very forward-looking show um, in its conception and its execution. If it were to do a pivot like that, it would belong, it is certainly worthy of continued conversation. Because continued screening. Okay, we're going to take a break, hear from our sponsors, and then when we come back, Andy and I are going to talk about the next Game of Thrones power rankings. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, aka Father John Misty, <laughs> or shopping for the perfect gift or searching for a last minute deal to see your favorite team. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices. I can't believe you just blanked me on Father John Misty, bro. I've been blanking Father John Misty for years. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year or the best Father John Misty songs. And SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have SeatGeek on my phone and it is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I decided to cop some Dodgers Rockies tickets for the weekend. Take my wife to Dodger Stadium. Why not? It's lovely out in Los Angeles. I can be anywhere with just a few taps. I can instantly find seats. 
SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. That's promo code WATCH for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. Okay, Andy, we're back. This is interesting. I'm excited to talk about this because Westworld was, through no fault of the creators, and you know, positioned as... HBO's next big mm-hmm. uh, franchise to take over this Sunday night, week-long, months-long conversation topic show to make it so that they, you know everybody, you had to have HBO, you had to talk about what was on HBO. If you watched it five minutes too late, you'd have something ruined mm-hmm. and that it would basically be this world-building experience in the same way that Game of Thrones has spawned. Tons of different media covering it, and it has some very good after shows. It's got, I mean, incredible stuff. Just like really, really like handsome, compelling commentary. people talking about. Uh, it. Last year, I think he was speaking at some sort of conference. Uh, Richard Plepler, who's the chairman of HBO, said, "Anyone who tells you that we knew that Thrones was going to be Thrones is completely full of shit. You don't know that. You never know where the next great thing is. So the key is to make a lot of bets with a wide range of talent." And it's likely that some of them will pay off. It's worth keeping in mind. We are, it's a copycat business. We are probably doing this in, uh, this will be for nothing because something else will come along in a couple of years. And we'll be like, whoever could have thought that. The Great British Baking Show in space. But that there would be something where people got tired of of Mm -hmm. swords and shields and outer space. And we went back and some show that reminded us of The Sopranos or something came and captivated a nation. let's look at the fact that while all of the prestige cablers and streamers have been chasing Game of Thrones' very long dragon tail, NBC had a moment of clarity and was like, let's just do NBC and yeah. made This Is Us, right. which is now everyone's chasing that, including HBO with that Alan Ball show Here that, now. Is, that yeah. has come and gone. Right. But I, in the, it's always hard. It's hard to remember things that other things that people like when everyone seems temporarily excited about. Yeah, and thing. HBO is is well positioned to do something like this because they work with a lot of interesting people. And I think that while everybody is going scale and volume, they are still sticking to their. This is the suite of products we put out. Sometimes they yeah. hit, sometimes they miss, but we believe in what we do. By the way, tying this into the conversation we had a week or two ago. That quote from Plepler is so good and so indicative of the necessities of a creative-minded approach to the business. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from like a Time Warner, like a magazine world, like that's there's a consistency and we'll just throw stuff out there and we're going to find the right thing because we trust our people. I don't know if that's the same uh, culture of a phone company. So, sure. I'm just going to put that out there. We don't know. Sure. Because when, when you basically go to your new bosses in Texas who, you know, who, who make uh, data plans and you're like, we're going to spend this much money. Or is it the culture of the place where you buy Swiffers and Alan First novels? Or is know. it the culture of the we place that sells you $2,000 so, laptops that break in 18 months? So, so interesting. <laughs> yeah. And we almost just had last week's conversation again, but we're not doing that. We're not that. doing that because what we're talking about are shows that are either currently on or are in development. Yeah. Okay. And whether or not they could be classified as 
the next Game of Thrones. We'll do now, pros and cons. I think what we could probably do, and we're just sort of doing this a little bit on the fly, but what we could probably do is weight these accurately for our own personal anticipation mm-hmm. and or appreciation of them versus what we think the people who are making them are hoping to accomplish. Okay. So what we'll do is we'll just run through them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, maybe we can we can rank them better. Pros and cons gotcha. for each one. So let's start with something that's already on. Westworld. Yep. Uh, is it the blockbuster that HBO is paying for? Um, no. I think that's clear that it's not. I think that... Do you know um, how it's doing, like, quote-unquote, ratings-wise, to the extent that that can be quantified anymore? I have not paid attention to it. And one of the... Re- and, and I'll say that's both a ding on me and my awareness of ratings. But, you know, an interesting thing about HBO is HBO used to be like Netflix. They used to never, ever share their ratings. Right. They didn't have to. Except they suddenly got crazy good ratings with The Sopranos and they couldn't help themselves and they bragged about it. And once they bragged about it, then they had to keep telling people what was going on. Um, the fact that they haven't bragged about it, I haven't gotten press releases in my email, suggests that they're not breaking records here. Mm-hmm. But for whatever metrics they're looking at, I think, as we just said, the conversation, the chatter is enough that I think they're fine with it. Um, I think they, I think they maybe are also realizing now or have already realized that this is not going to be the level of success they hoped, yeah. but they're finding a way to make it work. I'll just reiterate what I said before about this, which is that it took a little while for Game of Thrones to get the ball rolling. You yeah. know what I mean? Game of Thrones was a largely, you know, it was people talking in rooms, which is still the thing that we like the most about the show, but the set pieces started popping up a little bit later. You know, the big set piece, quote unquote, from the first season is the death that we yeah. all know about. But Blackwater wasn't until season two. Yeah, so it, it, it technically... Westworld could still have some runway to go here and could get to this kind of uh, monocultural monolith uh, status that we're talking about. But so far, um, it's, it's there's a couple of challenges for that. I, I also think fundamentally, and this happens often with genre shows, um, it, Game of Thrones is such a unicorn for any number of reasons. But one of the reasons is that it's, it appeals to diehard genre people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have binge mode devoted to it, but it also has leached into the public conversation in such a profound way. And oh, yeah. everyone is you watching You read it. Wedding, this person, you know what I what, mean? Like it, a lot of stuff from this show has become part of like the, the, the like people who don't even know they're referring to Game of Thrones or referring to Game Westworld, of I think, is servicing its diehards in a way, which, yeah. is, which has value. Yes. But I think that limits its chance for expansion. Okay, What's, that's Westworld. What about Stranger Things? Stranger Things is a fascinating case for me because it, does tick a lot of the boxes um, that you just suggested for Game of Thrones in that it it started kind of slow. I mean, even in, uh, I don't know if, if you've heard David Harbour, who's obviously the star of the show, mm-hmm. one of the stars of the show, was on Mark Maron the other week. And it's a great, great, great interview and a great conversation. He's a very fascinating guy. He basically says, like, they Netflix buried it. Like he said that Harbour, Harbour says that he was on uh, Broadway or off-Broadway doing a play with a veteran actor when the show was about to premiere. And he said, oh, it's interesting. Um, I guess they're doing kind of a viral thing. Like I'm not really seeing any advertisements on buses or subways. And his co-star was like, that's called burying it, David. Yeah. Like the show's dead. Yeah. And of course now Netflix is like, oh, we just had confidence that would be word of mouth. They had no confidence. Yeah. Whether or not you look at it as confidence or not, you could also say that the people who were making the show probably didn't expect it to be as big as it was. Mm -hmm. It's a love letter to 80s Amblin pop Mm -hmm. culture. Um, It did not have... I don't know if this is true or not, but I think you could watch that first season and be like, they don't really know what like the upside out is. Mm-hmm. It's just like a kind of catch-all. This is the dark place. This is where this is hell, but not really. It's like a, another dimension, but there are demons there. But like, eh, well, which, 
probably not going to matter anyway, Which, right? Which, by the way, contra the last 20 years of investigative reddit, uh, redditing of culture, I, kind of, I find that charming. I, yes. I enjoyed the first season because it seemed so zeroed in on a small scale level with these characters, with their emotions, that it didn't need to explain what the consequences were to the larger world um, beyond these characters. And now, and then we saw in season two, I would say a kind of bumpy attempt to scale up. I mean, whatever problems people had with season two, positives or negatives, I don't really hear anyone clamoring for more of the other numbered kids. You know, there sure. was that whole set piece with- There's a bottle up. Yeah, not a bottle episode, uh, but a standalone The episode, other gang, yeah. you know, I, I, that didn't work, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I assume the people making the show understand why or that didn't work and they're adjusting. But that did seem like an attempt to say, well, maybe there's more here. Maybe we can squeeze this toothpaste tube a little bit more and have a much larger universe. I think the thing standing in the way of Stranger Things becoming the cultural phenomenon is the thing that I admire most about it, which is it's closer- tighter focus yeah, it's, on the lives of children suburban, and our memories. It's domestic. It's lived in. It's pretty much entirely wrapped up in these kids and their charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a Rob Stark and uh, Ned, Ned Stark and Tyrion Lannister. Or what was, the, who was the father? <laughs> Look at us, Tywin. Sorry. We, we, we really take the offseason off. This is not a Rob Stark, a Ned Stark, or a Tywin Lannister situation where you're going to be able to like, like rotate through an entire cast. Like It's these kids. This show's going to go four or five seasons. Maybe they'll do a spinoff or whatever. Uh, I'm sure that they would want to stay in the 80s vibe. Uh, they could keep doing that. But I don't. I think that this is entirely based on these kids and they're like probably going through high school. That said, um, season three, I think, just started filming. But that said, what is your interest level? I'm making this up right now. Mm-hmm. In a prequel series focused on like the MK Ultra experiments with well, like they're doing young... a novelization of that right now. Oh, are they really? That yeah. makes sense. But what about like a 70s show that's pulpier and like post-hippies, like post-Altamont, like experimentation on kids led by I'm a young Matthew I'm glad you brought Modine. that up because there's a couple of these things that I want to talk about. Uh-huh. Um, you didn't say you're interested or not. You're thinking about so it. So I'm going to bump up from here, okay. your question. Uh-huh. I'm going to bump up the Star Wars live action show. Okay. Okay, so this is John Favreau's live action Star Wars show that it's being slated to run on the eventual Disney over the top app, right? Right. Uh, the, 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 Disney's attempted Netflix killer that's going to have an original Star Wars show and it's going to be the place where instead of having to buy them all on iTunes, you can watch all the Disney cartoons, you'll, all the Star Wars movies, all the Marvel movies. Yes. And I have a feeling like chronology is going to start to break a little bit under the stress of these franchises because we've already seen it with Solo. You've got a lot of shows. This show is supposed to take place between seven years after the end of Return of the Jedi. So seven years after the Battle of Endor um, before Force Awakens. This is when it's rumored to, to take place. That's still, man, like I know that some stuff happened in between, although JJ definitely yada yada. It's like the Empire's back. Yep. Who could have guessed it's, that? They got making, a Death Star. They're making another base. But this is the same thing that we're talking about with Solo. This is the same thing that we'll talk about with the Lord of the Rings show next. We know the end point. Yeah. We know where it's going. And so much of these stories are still going to be beholden to, you guys know where this is going. So I, here's a little bit of a breadcrumb trail so that we can get to the Millennium Falcon, so that we can get to the Castle Run, so that we can get to whatever the Lord yeah. of the Rings thing that happened 5,000 years before Lord of the Rings. Same thing for the Game of Thrones prequel. But for this Star Wars thing, I'm like, really, what are we talking about here? Like 25 years yeah. that we already know what the ending is of? 
I don't it, understand. I don't think, I think people are choosing like, what if we said it right there? So like, what if we said it in the seventies, right before Stranger Things? So what? So yeah. that we could get to the show that I actually like? Exactly. And you know, it just immediately curtails your drama because you know the end points of a lot of people. If they introduce characters you already know, you know what happens yeah. to them. If they introduce new characters, then you have to, it's almost harder because you have to care about them twice as much to reinvest in them. And I think the point you're making, we can circle back to our larger thesis here. It speaks to the miraculous nature of Game of Thrones because in a way, kind of an unexpected sideways way, it hurdled this challenge. Yes. Because for the people who read the books, which you know went up to a season and a half ago, basically, more or less. Obviously, some things were spread out differently when they made the show. Watching Game of Thrones, the TV show, was like watching a prequel to their own interests. Mm -hmm. They knew where things were going, and they still watched because it was very satisfying to them to, to finally see what these things looked like that they had heard about. And at about. any given point, but, Benioff and Weiss could have changed their minds and done something differently, but, maybe. But my point is, Game of Thrones did gave you gave you a show that gave you both. Yes. It gave you that feeling yes. for people who read the books of a prequel, and then all of a sudden— they hit open water. And so then everyone is excited and on board. It managed to be both shows at the same well, time. And also the problem is, is that a lot of these stories, the stakes of the stories are the fate of the world itself. Mm -hmm. But if you know that the fate of the world is ultimately going to be, at least if not fine, still in play mm -hmm. 30 years later, mm -hmm. then the consequences or the stakes of we've got to do X, Y, and Z, or planets will fall, or something will explode, or we'll all die, it's not going to work. It's not, it doesn't work. And I, I feel that way, so we have this Star Wars live action show, which is currently in development. There's a Lord of the Rings Amazon show, which Jennifer Salk is very bullish about, which Jeff Bezos is very bullish about. I mean, he spent part of her of get, a billion yeah. dollars. Part of her getting the job, which she took over in April as the head of programming for Amazon, she had to be bullish about it. I mean, they spent a quarter of a billion dollars yeah. on it. This is going to be uh, coming in 2020 or 2021, uh, and we'll, we'll focus on the young version of Aragorn, who was played by Viggo Mortensen in the movies. Uh, they expect to make five seasons. There's rumors that Peter Jackson could be involved. But we know what happens to Aragorn. I know it kills me. It's really a great point. It, what, so what? What's our ceiling here? And I think that that they've kind of dropped a not to make an Amazon pun, but they've dropped a box over themselves here, and they've put themselves in it. What are they harvesting here, and what are they after? They are harvesting the diehard fan. Yes, there are people who are deeply passionate about the works of Tolkien. They love Lord of the Rings. They are obviously going to watch anything that's said in this world. They're they're also betting on the fact Amazon is betting on the fact you know they can. It's a vertical thing for for Amazon. They can sell you the books, you can rent the movies, and now you can watch the show. They're betting on the fact that there's a whole new generation mm -hmm. who grew up on their parents' DVDs or Blu-rays of the Peter Jackson movies who will be excited to watch new adventures in this world, but. What's the ceiling? It is a lower ceiling, I think, because yeah. we already know the fate of the world. And we are going to talk a little bit more in detail. I think we should leave it for the end about the Game of Thrones. Sure, let's announced. do that. But it's very, very tough for storytellers, let alone corporations, to be like, we just finished selling you slash telling you the most important story in the history of this fictional world. Now let's just watch a lesser one. Yeah. That's exactly that's a, that's a difficult. The idea that I think was driving a lot of this stuff, especially these Star Wars anthology movies, was people fucking love this story. They love this. They just want to hang out in this world. They want lightsabers. But that is in theory. In practice, I think people still want to be challenged and they want to be taken on that journey. And when they go on that journey, they want to feel like there is at least the possibility of stakes. 
And I think that that was always the exciting thing about watching the first three Star Wars movies. And frankly, it was really an exciting part about Last Jedi is that I don't, there was any number of ways that could have gone. That could that that it could have gone, and and they made real decisions. And in retrospect, people have argued about it, and they mm-hmm. even have a hilariously on Twitter tried to like remake the Last Jedi, which is thank you because like basically only like two or three things that are funny a year actually happen on Twitter, and that was one of them. But this is like that's the one thing you can really unequivocally say about those movies is that mm-hmm. they have pushed forward for as much as they're beholden structurally to the original films. They are actually like. And, you know, and then what could happen? Well, I don't know. Let's try this. Well, particularly, and that's, and I think that you're, you're bringing it up as an example of positive things, but it's also an example of why they're making Aragorn series, which is Ryan Johnson did some things that were potentially radical. He basically said, ignore everything that happened before. What if the force was this? Mm-hmm. What if the story we're trying to tell you now means this? And it, it made the people. And what if your hero was not, in fact, of royal Jedi bloodline, but was just this person? What if it was different now? Yeah. And people reacted very, very, very strongly to that. And, right. you know, when you have spent half a billion dollars in your investment, you want people reacting strongly in the other direction. Um, let's let's burn through a couple more. Let's of these. do the other one that's that's still on the air, which is you put The Walking Dead on this list. Yeah, the reason I put it on there, um, people have been uh, watching over, like the, the, the show has been on life support uh, critically. Mm-hmm. Commercially, it's been on a slow but kind of manageable decline yeah. uh, in terms of its ratings. The interesting thing here is it's going into season nine, ain't no days off at AMC, and the star of the show has announced that he is leaving at the end of this coming mm-hmm. season, and that the other another one of the fan favorites, uh, Maggie, played by Lauren Cohen, is also leaving after a few episodes into this season. And Norman Reedus, who is sort of the real Walking Dead fan's favorite character, mm-hmm. I guess, is sort of taking over the above-the-line marquee star yep. role. Um, that kind of thing usually doesn't happen in television shows. Jack didn't leave Lost, you know. Like, Although this show is uniquely uh, suited for this sort of transition. Yeah. Um, it would be very interesting. I think that so the, this, they are almost in a, in a way in a sort of Star Wars zone where they have to keep making a show that satisfies the 10 to 13 million people who are like, mm-hmm. I'm going to watch this every Sunday. And they can't. The the problem is that they're starting to turn those people off even while they think they're making that same show. So here's a radical suggestion that I'm sure people have made both on fan forums and that I don't look at and probably internally and creatively. What if they did pull a loss? Now, you mentioned Jack didn't leave on loss, but loss was telling, at least they had always hoped to tell, a complete story. Walking Dead, one of the things that's actually kind of brilliant about Walking Dead in terms of its longevity is it's essentially a procedural, right? They have no desire, or at least have evinced no desire to solve this, to make people not be zombies anymore and build a new world. They have to, you know, there's a body in every episode of Law and Order. There's multiple people being eaten in every episode of Walking Dead, and that's the bang for the people's buck. But what if they were looking at the ratings, they see the slide, they realize the landscape they're up against. What if they announced there are going to be three more seasons of The Walking Dead? We're just telling you that right now. Yeah. And in those last three seasons, hard pivot, and they either solve it or they don't. You know right. what I mean? Like, we we end this world and see what could happen. Suddenly, people are paying attention again. Suddenly, it feels like appointment viewing again. And you can milk that for three more seasons. Frankly, I would argue that three more seasons of a narrative recharge 
with new excitement what around it. might it, actually bring people in, in is, like, be like, hey, I'll check it out. That's of more value, I think, than five more seasons of declining esteem and ratings. But, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not up to me. Okay. So Walking Dead, it's still in the mix, even though it seems to be kind of dropping off a little bit. What else here should we talk about? Let's talk about some of the things that are in development. Yes. So I just wanted to mention because Apple has been relatively, I wouldn't say conservative in their the, the shows that they're developing. <laughs> Nor so far. in their spending. In their, they have not been conservative in their spending, but it shows like Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, dra- dramedy set at a morning show. Uh, there is, um, what was the, the Kumail Nanjani, uh, show that they were talking about? An anthology series. They're doing, they're rebooting Amazing Stories, the Steven Spielberg, uh, anthology show from the eighties. Um, they haven't written their big check yet. Well, they've written a lot of big checks. They've written a lot of big checks, but they haven't been like, here's a billion dollars. We want the new Star Wars or Game of Thrones. No, what they've been doing, and I've said this before and I'll keep saying it, is they appear to be in the press release business until they make a TV show and even tell us how we're going to watch the TV show, by the way. We all, you know, we're Chris and I are doing this podcast looking at our Apple laptops. Mm-hmm. So presumably we will have access to this, these shows, but they haven't even explained how it's going to be distributed. So they're in the press release business. They are disrupting the field. They're spending Netflix money and getting headlines and getting attention, and they've hired the heads of the Sony studio, but they haven't actually made anything yet. And right. so I think that your point is is well taken. Right now, they're winning over the industry, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then maybe once they have a foothold or show us they can make something, then they might make their then they might make their play for the layman. I also think that part of what you have to keep in mind here is more and more uh, people who are associated with film film work, like Reese Witherspoon, get involved in television. No matter what the uh, line is about like, well, this is where the great stories are. So I'm coming to TV. I don't think those people still want to be tied down to doing something for six or seven years. No. And, and that's important to keep in mind when you see, you know, oh, so-and-so is making the, the jump to TV. It's like, well, they are, but they're making the jump to an eight episode run here yeah. or an 11 episode run there, but not, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be, uh, look at the faces of the people who make Game of Thrones. They're ready for it to be over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Look at their gray hair. Look at their families who they haven't seen. Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually become an interesting rite of passage that people don't, I don't know if we've been talking about it as much, but it used to be, and this does happen too, that when you win an Oscar, you get, you know, you make a movie that gets that kind of attention, then you can write your ticket for your next film. And that's certainly still the case. But the first thing you do before you even announce your next film is you go make cash yeah. with a deal at Netflix or yes. Apple or Amazon. Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro producing, Damien Chazelle producing stuff, Barry Jenkins making um, Underground Railroad. Underground Railroad. Yeah you know, worthwhile projects all, but not evidence that they are going to become Steven Bochco. Yeah. They're cashing it. So the so. one thing that Apple has that could be in this mix, in the zone of what we're talking about, is this untitled Ronald Moore space race show. Mm-hmm. Ronald Moore, the guy behind Battlestar Galactica and later Outlander, um, one of the great kind of TV thinkers when it comes to sci-fi. And this is supposed to be what if the space race never ended? What if we just kept going and kept fighting to... I would assume colonized, but it's supposed to basically be an alternative history um, from the future of, of, of the space race continuing. Uh, we don't know much about it, but it is the one kind of genre-y widescreen thing that they have going so far. So I'd be curious to see, because Battlestar, I kind of wonder if Battlestar started today, if it would have been like a complete blockbuster. Although people would say that's the expanse. No, uh, yes, but I do think if Battlestar was now and it was still, you know, semi-valuable IP, it probably would have flashier budgets. It would have bigger stars. It may be on a different network. And I I actually am excited about this show because it's a great concept and it has the kind of open-ended 
um, kind of open-ended world building concept that makes it of all the shows we've talked about, we don't know anything about it, Yeah, but it's forward looking. Sure. And that alone makes me excited about what it could be. And you know, it's not on your list, but I was going to come back to it for the same reason. Um, Star Trek is back on TV in a big way. Sure. We haven't talked about Discovery. And one of the reasons it's not even in this conversation, although I've heard good things pro and con, is that I do know that the way the first season ended suggested a Aragorn problem in terms of its, or a Star Wars problem, whatever we want to call it. Yeah, right. In terms of what it wants to do. They just signed Alex Kurtzman, who wrote some of the recent rebooted movies, to be the, basically be the rabbi of this entire TV operation that they're not going to expand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was immediately talk that Patrick Stewart was talking about doing something with them. And I have to say, I'm generally not into, you know, uh, fan service or reboots you'd be, and stuff. You'd be down with If Picard. they were like eight episode show, which is like Picard's Logan. By the way, <laughs> Picard was in Logan. But like old yeah. man Picard and you make like something like Lonesome Dove in space. That would be your Game of Thrones? That how would be your would, Lonesome how Dove? How good would that be though? We should do Lonesome Dove power rankings. Um, so you've got Star Trek. We've talked about, um, talked a little bit about the Realm or Apple show. We're going to immediately just say the passage could have been this but we already feel comfortable saying it's Yeah, not. go back and listen to the to our review of the Passage trailer. Although, you know, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt just because I'm interested in the content. Why the Last Man and Damon Lindelof's Watchmen? That's where I want to end. And then we can talk a little bit about the Thrones prequel. Yeah. Uh, I am extremely excited um, about Damon's Watchmen. We talked about it briefly. I think that the fact that he is using, as he himself said in his letter to fans, using the original text as... Uh, the Old Testament and attempting to do a New Testament. Like this is the most exciting, uh, forward-looking, I think, adult way to approach beloved IP. Sure. Um, I think he's doing something really, I think he's trying really hard in a good way to innovate. And there are a few people who are doing that. I wonder if that desire to innovate um, and do justice to the past limits the scale of this. You know, um, this is such a fascinating choice for him. And he makes, you know, he, he's very thoughtful about the choices he makes in terms of his career. This seems like the play, right? He did Lost and everyone was like, here, do franchises, do sci-fi, do, do the big show. And he chose to adapt existing IP, but it was a, you know, respected Tom Parada novel. Yeah. Watchmen turned into one of the best shows of recent times, but intentionally smaller in scale. Yeah. And limited in its audience. His version of Watchmen is the big play to be both. Sure. Can he take the 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 naughtiness, the intensity, the emotional weight of what he was doing with the leftovers and throw it onto this great big widescreen canvas yeah. with superheroes? Nothing could be better in my mind, but I guess I think if it's going to if there's going to be faults here, I think they're going to be faults in the direction that I care more about. I think it may not become yeah, the biggest show in the fails, world. Yeah, if it fails, it'll be it'll fail because it, it's, it's like for you. Yeah, it's too right. naughty and mature and adult and interesting to achieve. Which, by the way, Game of Thrones is naughty and mature and adult and interesting, and they're fucking dragons. What do you think about Why the Last Man? That's the one I'm most. I think that that's the so one. So that would be your number one. I'm going to circle Why the Last Man here because. First of all, it's based on a Brian Vaughn and Pia Guerra comic book uh, that ran for, a, I think, 70-plus issues. I'm a big fan of it. You should check it out. They're all in nice editions. The, con- the conceit here is that uh, there's this guy named Yorick, and he's the last man on Earth. All the men die. And why did it happen, and what happens in the world? It's been in development for a long time as a feature film, as a TV show. It's one of those things. This does happen. Just when everyone gives up hope that it's ever going to be made into anything, not only does it suddenly bubble back to the surface, but the time is suddenly right for it. Mm-hmm. 
I think this, it, you can't discount the larger world and larger context that, that shows are being told in. And the idea of pivoting um, big budget, big genre, comic book stuff, telling a story about the world or the end of the world or the beginning of a new world and making, and making a show that by its nature is explicitly feminist and is explicitly dealing with what ifs that these other shows have not had any interest in considering. Yeah. This is the time to make the show. Now, we don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be on FX. We know Michael Green, who actually wrote Logan, right? Yeah. And has a, a long list of TV credits, is making the show. He had written the pilot and he's partnered with a woman who worked on Luke Cage to run it. Jodie Foster is rumored to be joining the cast. Um, your good friend, Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. I believe you've done a number of events with her recently. <laughs> um, this is the one that I think has the potential. To be a game changer. To be, to, be a big, to be a big show in an exciting way. Because I think regardless of what they do, it's going to have a conversation around it. If they do it well, it could be a really good and long-lasting conversation. Um, and, it's FX is make, and it's FX making a big genre play. They've been very modest in that while understanding that, yeah, they missed out by not having Walking Dead. Yeah. So if this is the one that they identify, if they underline it, circle it, put all of their creative resources, which are considerable towards it, we might have something unique and special here. Uh, we can just talk briefly about the Game of Thrones prequel, which we've gone into. It's Jane Goldman. She wrote uh, The Kingsman. She's an accomplished screenwriter. She's been working with George R. R. Martin on uh, on this show. It's set 10,000 years before Game of Thrones, and it could cover, we have no knowledge of this, it could cover some stuff like the construction of the wall or the origin of the Night's Watch. I think that this is going to be incredibly dependent on how the last season of Game of Thrones is received. Great point. Um, on one hand... If Martin is heavily involved in this and is infusing this with the undergirding of Game of Thrones history that I think a lot of people, it attracted a lot of people to the show in the first place. It's like, man, there's a lot going on Some here. of our coworkers. Um, that's one thing. If it feels like Game of Thrones ends in a way that is rappy uppy, mm -hmm. like, yeah, like- That's the world. We yep, did it. We did it. The, the dragon did this and she's with him and that's it. Then I don't know. I, I'll be very curious to see basically the relationship between these two things. And also whether or not just in general, people's attention span will last for 10 years like this. Yeah. I, where I, they'll, they'll be willing to do this for this long. There's a difference between telling a story we want to hear and showing us something we're interested in seeing. And I think that it does seem like a smart play that a prequel is going to have just this, it's going to be a little bit less interesting to people. It's not going to be as successful. It's ceiling, as I've said before, on this podcast is lower, but people yeah, it'd be neat to see them build a wall. It'd yeah. be neat to see a world of heroes in this world or the long night, the opposite of the age of heroes, whatever they decide to do. But once you see it, how much longer do you care about it? And I, and I, you know, they've said, HBO has said that, that this might not be the only one they green light. Sure. I would say just from my position on the sidelines, I think that what would be great for HBO would be to continue to think of themselves in the handling of this franchise as uh, jewelers. They have the nicest ones in the shop. They don't need to have, I mean, maybe they do now for the bottom line, but in a world where they don't need to have Game of Thrones on every year, they didn't have it in 2018, I would be more interested in a collection of Game of Thrones stories than I am another show like an ready to jump series. on. Yeah. People have said there's like the Duncan Egg stories, which is something, you know, a, yeah, yeah. a, a buddy thing that that exists in the George R. R. Martin world. I would love them to do an eight episode thing with that. Take us back there. Okay. And now let's t press pause. Let's think of another story we want to tell. Yeah. Because if the premise, you know, because I think ultimately 
the Game of Thrones spinoff fails our next Game of Thrones test because we are talking about a show that not only united the TV watching world, but completely but defined the level of stakes that we're talking about. It was about a world and the end of that world. Anything could happen. And if it did, it would matter a lot. Yeah. And yeah. so none of neither of us are willing to give up on the idea of a show grabbing everyone's attention like this, not only because we'll be looking for a new show to have an after show for in 2019, but because, you know, as, as we always say, we love... Yeah, Water so cooler TV, we love consensus television. Yeah, you're circling why the last man. I'm actually going to put a pin in the Ronald Moore Space Race show because of what I said. I think if Battlestar came on today, we're talking about a much different audience for it. And I, I'm very curious to see what he does. A little of that that Tim, Tim Cook guap. Let's keep this conversation going. Yeah. You can add us on Twitter at The Watch Pod. Get in the Facebook Get group. Get in the Facebook group. Tell us what not only what your pick is for the next Game of Thrones, but what you want in another Game of Thrones. That's right. And we will take those concerns and we will deliver them to the doorstep of Hollywood. Yes. Because that's what we do. Chris, tell, tell the people, this is the week of the Day of the Soldado. It's Day of the Week of the Soldado Day. We're going to be talking about the first Sicario a bit on Thursday and talking a little bit about uh, the new one. Uh, we'll actually do our kind of episode about it next Monday. Can't wait. We might have a special guest for Thursday and we might have a special guest for Monday. We'll see uh, until Thursday. Great job, Baranskis. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Why don't you get decked out in the latest fit from the ringer.com's merch store. Draped up. The ringer.com slash shop. Cop a watch t-shirt. Aqua blue. Brings out the blue in my eyes. $24.99. It says, great job, Baranski. It says, the watch on the back. Wear it with pride. People will be dapping you up. Smurf blue for the summertime. Smurf gang.